This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the early morning hours of March 29, 2019, 21-year-old Samantha Josephson, a student at the University of South Carolina, was out enjoying a few drinks with some friends. She hadn't seen them for a while as she'd been too busy studying for her final exams. On top of that, she'd also been dealing with a close family member who was in poor health. But now that she had some free time, she wanted to let loose for a few hours, which was exactly what led her to arrive at the Bird Dog Bar in Columbia at around 12.40 a.m. Less than two hours after that, at around 2 a.m., however, Samantha called an Uber as she had to work later that morning. She left the bar by herself at that point and waited outside for the driver to arrive. Nine minutes later, a car came around and picked her up. What she didn't realize at the time, though, was that the vehicle she'd just entered didn't belong to an Uber driver. No, it belonged to the man who was about to kill her. This is Monsters. Samantha Josephson was well-loved by everyone who knew her. To them, she was more than just a friend. She was a key part of their lives. But then why would she be anything less? After all, this was a young woman who went out of her way to help others. She was smart, kind, outgoing, and was looking forward to the next chapter in her life. Upon completing her final exams and graduating from the University of South Carolina with a major in political science, she planned on going on to study law at the Drexel University School of Law in Philadelphia, not far from where she had grown up in Robbinsville, New Jersey. Unfortunately for her, though, she'd never get the chance to do that, because before she could, she'd become prey to Nathaniel Rowland. Nathaniel Rowland was only 24 years old at the time of Samantha's disappearance. Back then, he was living in the unincorporated community of New Zion in Clarendon County, South Carolina, the same place he'd lived since his days studying at East Clarendon Middle and High School. Despite showing potential as a basketball player while there, life had not gone great for Nathaniel post-graduation. That was because not long after enrolling at South Carolina State University in 2017, he dropped out. 
So while his future victim was enjoying the student life by doing things like studying abroad in Barcelona as part of an exchange program, he was both struggling to make ends meet in low-paying jobs and getting into trouble with authorities after he got arrested in October of 2018 for the charge of obtaining a signature under false pretenses. Now, what the exact nature of his crime was is unclear, but one thing is for sure. And that was that getting caught clearly didn't deter him from taking part in increasingly more unhinged activities as just one year later, he'd be on the verge of committing a murder. That murder would take place on March 29th, with him deciding on his victim after driving around the local Columbia area and seeing a young woman he liked the look of standing outside the Bird Dog Bar. That woman, of course, would be Samantha Josephson, and as Nathaniel approached her, she assumed he must have been the Uber driver she was waiting on. Once she got inside his vehicle, however, she quickly realized the mistake she'd made as the driver drove in the opposite direction from her apartment and wouldn't let her out of the car no matter how much she begged. But unbeknownst to Daniel, someone else would notice the fact he'd driven Samantha in the wrong direction that night because, as it turned out, she had a boyfriend named Greg Corbishley in Charleston who had access to the location tracker on her phone. It was something they had shared with each other prior to that as it allowed the couple to know where the other one was for the sake of safety. And on that evening, as he was lying in bed on his phone, he noticed she was headed in a strange direction. Of course, he didn't want to come across like he was being too nosy about her personal matters as she didn't have to run anything she did by him. But it did seem strange she'd been going somewhere that wasn't her apartment as she'd called him not long before to say she was headed home. So, just to be on the safe side, Greg tried calling Samantha a couple of times but he couldn't get an answer. Maybe she decided to go back to a friend's house, he reasoned with himself at that point before he put his phone aside and went to sleep, intent on not overthinking the situation. He believed that he shouldn't be worried about it anyway. After all, he was going to see her in a couple of days when she drove over to visit him, so he'd just ask her about it in person then. But that planned visit would never take place because, when he woke up later that morning, Greg looked at his phone and saw that he had several missed calls from Samantha's friends. As it turned out, she hadn't come home and couldn't be found anywhere. She hadn't even shown up for her shift at work. Obviously, at that point, Greg started to panic as a million thoughts began running through his mind, each scarier than the last. Those thoughts only got worse when, after speaking to her roommate on the phone, he learned they'd been able to access her computer and discover that the Uber driver she'd ordered the night before was listed as having been cancelled. Why was it cancelled? Well, because when the driver showed up, she wasn't there. But that couldn't be possible, Greg reasoned to himself. He'd spoken to Samantha not long before she got into a car and he'd seen her on her phone tracker that she was in transit at one point. When she was moving, she had been headed away from her apartment, something her boyfriend remembered again now with dawning terror. Did that mean she had gotten in someone else's car and something terrible had happened to her? That was what he began to fear and he wasn't the only one who feared that. So, as he was calling Samantha's parents to ask if they'd heard from her, her friends were contacting the Columbia Police Department. Needless to say, though, Samantha's parents, Marcy and Seymour, had not heard from her either. 
That led Greg to decide the best thing to do was to get in his car and drive over to Columbia immediately, where he could be of more use to the authorities in helping to locate Samantha. And when he got there, that's exactly what he set about doing, as both he and Samantha's friends went out searching for her, with them paying particular attention to the area surrounding the bird dog bar where she'd last been seen. Frustratingly for them, however, no matter how many doors they knocked on or how many people they questioned, no one had any useful information to give them. That was until, in a final attempt to get anything they could use to assist in the search, they went inside the bar itself and asked if they could see their surveillance footage from the evening before. Lo and behold, that surveillance footage showed Samantha, clearly identifiable by the bright orange top she was wearing, getting into a black four-door Chevy Impala at 2.09 a.m. Realizing what that meant, Greg immediately went to the police with the new information he'd uncovered. And after learning of what had happened, they began using their additional resources and sway to get access to surveillance footage from the entire Five Point District in which the Bird Dog Bar was located. Thankfully, one of the businesses had surveillance footage that gave them more detail. That camera was positioned adjacent to the Bird Dog Bar parking lot and gave them some crucial additional information in that it showed the black Chevy in question doing a loop around the area before picking up Samantha, suggesting this was at least to some degree a premeditated kidnapping. Of course, even if that was news that would eventually help when things went to trial, it didn't do police much good when it came to helping them locate the missing woman as not only did further security cameras in the area eventually lose sight of the vehicle once it was about a mile and a half away from the bar, but they also couldn't read the license plate number on the vehicle. Realizing they had to get some more information about the driver and where he might have gone, they put out a bolo across their radios, warning the officers to be on the lookout for any cars that matched the description of the one they were searching for. While word was spreading of the possible abduction, investigators were also making the 12-hour drive to New Jersey to speak to Seymour and Marcy Josephson, Samantha's parents. Not only to find out if they had any information they could give them about the missing woman, but also to ask for permission to access her bank records. The way they explained it, if the soon-to-be college graduate had found herself in a bad situation and someone had stolen her bank cards after the fact, then it was possible they would have tried to use them at an ATM. And if that had happened, investigators would be able to find out exactly which ATM that was and use that information to try to tighten the net. Would the person responsible for her kidnapping be so careless? It certainly appeared so, as Samantha's card had been used twice since her disappearance. Once at an ATM about 43 miles outside of Columbia, and then a second time inside of the city itself. But that didn't necessarily mean someone had harmed her and taken her cards quite yet. No, it was still possible Samantha had used those machines herself and that there was a perfectly good explanation for why she hadn't answered her phone or attempted to contact her loved ones. Of course, any hopes of that being the case were thwarted when, upon checking surveillance footage from the banks in question, investigators found that it had been a man who attempted to withdraw money. A man that was dressed in dark clothing and gloves, with a bandana and the drawstrings of his hoodie being used to cover up his face. Still, even if that was seemingly confirmation of a worst-case scenario, it gave the investigators something to go on as they now knew at least the gender and general location of the person they were on the lookout for. Unfortunately, their search for Samantha would end in tragedy anyway. 
A mere 14 hours after she'd gone missing, two turkey hunters in the nearby small town of New Zion discovered a body which would soon be identified as that of the woman everyone was looking for. Tragically, Samantha had died before anyone could come to save her, and to make matters worse, her death didn't appear to have been a painless one either. Rather, it was brutal in its nature as, upon arriving at the scene and inspecting her body, investigators saw that she had a litany of injuries, including more than 120 stab wounds across her face, neck, shoulder, torso, back, legs, hands, and feet. The attack had been so vicious that in at least one of the wounds, the blade had gone right through her skull and into her brain. If that wasn't enough to kill her, then the ones which had severed both her main carotid artery and the hyoid bone in her throat certainly would have been. Her injuries were so severe that the pathologist who later conducted an autopsy on her body determined that she likely died within 10 to 20 minutes of the initial attack as upon being discovered she only had 20 milliliters of blood left in her body, a far cry from the 5 liters that are supposed to be there in a healthy person. Once she was dead, it appeared her corpse had been dumped in a field in the hopes that it wouldn't be found. But it had been found, and now that it was, police had no choice but to give the deceased's family and friends the bad news, with it utterly breaking them. One thing they could take solace in, however, was the fact that, based on the injuries to her hands and arms, it appeared Samantha had put up a fight before ultimately succumbing to her wounds, meaning she hadn't just given up and accepted her fate. Of course, that was only a small solace to her loved ones, though, as, whether she had fought back or not, she was still dead and she had died in one of the most horrific ways imaginable. At that point, the focus shifted towards finding the man responsible. The man who had previously been seen on a bank security camera attempting to withdraw money from the young woman's account. But catching the perpetrator would be easier said than done because, without a clear visual of his face, it meant the only thing the investigators really had to go on was the car he was driving. And luckily for them, that car would soon metaphorically fall right into their laps. At around 3am on March 30th, 2019, the day after Samantha's body was discovered in a field in New Zion, Local police officer Jeffrey Kraft spotted a black Chevy Impala right as he was leaving the Five Points District. Knowing it matched the description of the vehicle linked to the murder, he turned on his lights in an attempt to pull the car over. The vehicle then turned left, going the wrong way down a one-way road before finally pulling over. Officer Kraft then got out of his own vehicle and approached the Impala. What followed would later be viewed in court as Officer Kraft recorded the entire thing on his vehicle's dash cam as well as his body cam. That meant everyone in the courtroom that day would get to see him ask the driver if he had a license, only for the driver to respond with a no as he claimed he had lost it at a club recently. Then, when Officer Kraft followed up by questioning whether or not the man was smoking marijuana, he replied that he had been doing so at home earlier that morning. So at that point, the officer asked the man to get out of the vehicle, and when he did, he quickly attempted to flee. It wasn't long before he was caught, handcuffed, and then identified as Nathaniel Rowland. Nathaniel wasn't alone while he was driving, though. In the passenger seat was a young woman, and she can be seen on the body cam footage as Officer Kraft returns to Nathaniel's vehicle. Obviously, because he tried to run, that left Officer Kraft with probable cause to search Nathaniel's car. 
When he did so, he first discovered a pink keychain with a USB drive attached in the pocket of the driver's door. As he continued looking through the front of the car, he also found Samantha's rose gold iPhone. In the back seat, there was so much blood that the seats and the insides of the doors were completely saturated. As if that wasn't enough evidence of what had gone on, not only were there bloody clothes in the trunk, but there was also a container of liquid bleach, cleaning wipes, and window cleaner, suggesting Nathaniel had made a haphazard attempt to get rid of any evidence that could incriminate him after the fact. Forensic testing confirmed the blood to be Samantha's. Once Nathaniel was in custody, he started claiming he was sick and that he couldn't breathe. During the trial, one of the officers on the scene presented his body cam footage showing them allowing him to lay down and calling to have him checked out by a medic. It was determined that he was healthy and the medics cleared him to be transported to the police station for an interview. Things looked pretty damning for the man now in custody. That said, he didn't appear worried. Rather, he was quite calm once he arrived back at the station for questioning. In fact, after telling investigators he had nothing to do with the killings, he went to his cell and slept, seemingly without a care in the world. But things were about to come crumbling down for Nathaniel, whether he realized it or not, because soon thereafter, police tracked down his girlfriend, Maria Howard, and brought her in for questioning too. When they did, they discovered that after Nathaniel had picked her up from work on the evening of March 28th, he'd left again in the early hours of the morning and hadn't returned until around 8 a.m. That left him with no alibi for his whereabouts when Samantha was kidnapped. And to make matters worse, when investigators obtained a search warrant for Maria's home, the first place he was known to have gone after the disappearance, they found a trash can around the back of the property that contained bloody paper towels, cleaning supplies, even more bloody clothes, and a two-bladed multi-purpose tool which was also coated in blood, more specifically, Samantha's blood. Realizing they all but had Nathaniel dead to rights, detectives questioned his girlfriend further and got her to admit she'd seen him cleaning blood from his car that fateful morning, though she hadn't called the authorities at the time as she'd been afraid to do so. Even though the case against Nathaniel Rowland was already looking pretty airtight, there was one more piece of evidence that would put the final nail in his coffin. Uh, swabs from underneath Mr. Rowland's right hand fingernails, is that correct? That is correct. All right. And what was your... Well, let me ask you this. What results do you have related to Ms. Josephson in regard to Mr. Rowland's right hand fingernails? The DNA profile was interpreted as a mixture originating from three individuals. Because these are Nathaniel Rowland's fingernails, we can expect his DNA to reasonably be there. So he is in, his DNA profile is considered in both scenarios. So scenario one is Nathaniel Rowland, Samantha Josephson, and an unidentified, unrelated individual contributed to the mixture versus the scenario where Nathaniel Rowland and two unidentified, unrelated individuals contributed to the mixture. The result of that comparison is the DNA profile is approximately 94 million times more likely if Nathaniel Rowland, Samantha Josephson, and an unidentified, unrelated individual contributed to the mixture than if Nathaniel Rowland and two unidentified, unrelated individuals contributed to the mixture. Just making sure I got it. So we're talking about Mr. Rowland's right-hand fingernails, correct? That is correct. And obviously he's going to be included in that mixture, correct? It's reasonable to expect his DNA to be included. 
and there's, according to your verbal scale, very strong support that Ms. Josephson is included as well. That is correct. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On April 29th, 2019, Nathaniel was charged with kidnapping, murder, and possession of a weapon during the commission of a crime. The only thing left at that point was to take the accused to trial where he could be judged by a jury of his peers. And while the prosecution could have pursued the death penalty as the trial was taking place in South Carolina, they chose not to go down that road in the end. Instead, they would seek to have Nathaniel imprisoned for the maximum period of time the law would allow. The battle to get that for the sake of the family would officially begin on June 20th, 2021, when the prosecution argued that the accused had murdered Samantha in cold blood, and that his motive for doing so had been as simple as he wanted some money. Of course, that was just a working theory, and for his part, Nathaniel would continue to deny he had any involvement in the killing, despite the fact 31 witnesses would be called to the stand over the course of the trial, with the combined testimonies of those witnesses painting a pretty clear picture of what occurred. As it was put forward at the time by them and the prosecution, Nathaniel had trapped his prey inside the car using child safety locks and, after she fought back, he overpowered her and killed her and left her body in a field in New Zion. Had he always intended to murder the woman or was the original plan just to rob her? That question would never be answered as throughout the proceedings the defendant remained solemn and continued to profess his innocence. According to his defense attorney, there was no evidence that it was Nathaniel who was driving the car when Samantha was kidnapped. The evidence presented by the prosecution seemed to prove otherwise. On top of Samantha's blood being found underneath Nathaniel's fingernails, after Samantha got into his car, both her and his phones were tracked traveling together. Because he was in the car. Once Samantha was killed, her phone was turned off, but Nathaniel's phone was tracked traveling to New Zion, where Samantha's body was found. From there, his phone was tracked traveling to two separate Wells Fargo banks, the exact same banks where a masked man is seen on surveillance attempting to withdraw money from her account. Nathaniel's ex-girlfriend, Maria Howard, also testified about his whereabouts at the time of the kidnapping and murder. Where were you? In my bed. Where was he when you went to sleep? Downstairs. How do you know he was downstairs? The TV was still on, and before I went to bed, I went back downstairs to make sure. So, you see, you said he's downstairs and you go to your room and go to sleep? Yes, ma'am. And when you go to sleep, he's downstairs? Mm hmm You positive of that? Unless he left, because he's good about leaving. But when you last saw him, he was downstairs, mm -hmm. is that? Yes, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that correct? Yes, ma'am. All right. So, what time do you go to bed? Around 1.32. And at that point, he's downstairs at 1.30? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Where, is he there when you wake up? No. And what time did you wake up? I have to be to work around 7, so I wake up around 5.30, 6 o'clock. 
And so around 5.36 o'clock, he's not there. No, ma'am. Were you, was that what you expected? No. What did you expect? Him to be there. Why? Because he told me he was going to be there when I wake up. And why, or had you asked him to be there when you woke up? Yes, ma'am. Why? Because I don't like staying by myself. And had he made you any promises about staying? Mm-hmm. Yes, what, what did he tell you? That he would be there when I wake up. But he wasn't. But he wasn't. So what did you do when you woke up and he wasn't there? I called his phone and I texted him. Did you get a response? No. Okay. How did you feel about that? I was upset because I knew I had to go to work and I don't like being late for work. Okay. So what did you do? I called my mom and by the time I got off the phone with my mom, he was pulling in the driveway. Do you remember what time that was? No, ma'am. Okay. Was it after you were supposed to have already been at work? Yes, ma'am. And you were supposed to be at work at 7? Yes, ma'am. The reason it stood out to Maria that Nathaniel wasn't at her home when she woke up was because she was scheduled to work that morning and he was supposed to give her a ride. By the time he arrived back at her house, she was already late for work, so she got into his car and this is what she noticed. And what, if anything, did you notice about the car at that point? That it was like dry blood in the car. Where in the car? On the dashboard and beside the seats. When you say the dashboard, what are you talking about? The, where the airbags are. Like the console? Yes, the console? Okay. And where else did you see blood? In the back seat. In the back seat. Was anything else in the back seat? It was a sheet over the, over the back seat and the back of the driver's seat. And how do you mean there was a sheet? It was kind of like covering, but it wasn't all the way covering the seat. Okay. Was it like draped on the seat so you could see the outline of the seat or was it above the seat or tell describe just like that. through over the seat where you can't see okay could you see anything in the back seat besides the sheet blood where did you see blood then on the seat on the seat mm -hmm. okay not not the part that was covered or was it under the could you see through the, the sheet like the part of the seat that wasn't covered you could see blood did you, what did you do when you saw the blood? I asked him, why is it blood in, this, in the car? Did you hit a dog? And what did he say? Mama business. Did he tell you he hadn't had his car all day? No. Tell you, did he tell you where he'd been other than being in the country? No. Nathaniel told Maria that he was going to go back to her house and clean out his car while she was at work and then he would pick her up when her shift was over. When he failed to arrive to give her a ride home, she ended up getting a ride from a co-worker. She banged on the door and he answered, but she claimed he looked shook. She then went inside and took a shower. So, what did you do after you got out of the shower? I put my clothes on and I went outside. And what was he doing? Cleaning the car. Okay. Did you all clean in the car how? Like scrubbing it with something. Could you tell what he was cleaning it with? It smelled like, the car smelled like chlorine. And I'm going to break that down. You say it smelled like chlorine. When did you first notice it smelled like chlorine? When you were going to work or after you After I got off work. Okay. Were, you said you went outside. Were you standing by the car? Like how? Yes, ma'am. So what were y'all's plans that day? To go to my mom's house. Okay. Um, you said, and I, I interrupted you, you said he was cleaning and you could smell chlorine? 
It was bleach, but it was so strong it smelled like chlorine. And while you're driving, what is he doing? Cleaning the car, still. Still clean, with what? Like, some type of wipes. Did you ask him about that? Yeah. What'd you ask him? Where do you get them from? Why are you cleaning the car with wipes? What'd he say? Not my business. And what, if anything, does he have on, have on his hands when he's doing this? He had, like, the surgical gloves. What do you mean by surgical? The blue surgical gloves. And did you see him clean anything besides the interior of the car? This little hunter's knife-like thing. I'm going to show you what's been marked as state exhibit number 13 and ask if you recognize that. Yes, ma'am. What is that? The thing that he was cleaning. And does that fairly and accurately depict the way it looked when you saw it? Yes, ma'am. This time I'd ask to introduce state exhibit number 13 into evidence. Not only did Maria witness Daniel cleaning the car at the house, he also cleaned the interior of the car while she was driving them to her mother's house and he cleaned the multi-tool he used to stab Samantha. What kind of car did he have? A black Impala. Did you ever see him drive a different car? No, ma'am. And did you ever see him let anyone else drive that Impala? Besides me, no, ma'am. And when you drove it, was he with you or let you drive it alone? He was with me. Of course, despite the evidence, including Samantha's DNA under his fingernails, his phone showing he was with her, and his girlfriend testifying that he was the one driving his car that night, saw blood inside his car immediately after he returned and witnessed him cleaning the murder weapon, Nathaniel insisted that there was no evidence that he had committed the murder. And he wasn't the only one arguing he had nothing to do with it, as his mother, Loretta Rowland, would also cause a scene in the courtroom at one point when she shouted, quote, the state has accused our son of a crime that he didn't commit. Now I know as a mother, and a mother knows her child, I know my son didn't do this. Of course, that outburst would be quickly shut down by State Circuit Judge Clifton Newman, who proclaimed that he was only interested in hearing the testimony of witnesses. And it was by hearing what those witnesses had to say that both he and the jury would eventually come to the same conclusion on July 27th. It was then that the jury found Nathaniel Rowland guilty on all counts. At that point, Judge Clifton delivered one final address to the convicted. This is the first time, however, that I've presided over a case where a victim was stabbed 120 times. The last case I participated in where a victim was stabbed and tortured resulted in a jury imposing the death penalty, which in, the, in this state is defined as murder accompanied by aggravating circumstances. And certainly a kidnapping is an aggravated circumstance. And I hear a lot of mothers tell me, um, what a good child their child is. And quite often I have to unfortunately tell the same mothers and fathers that your child was a good child. But that's when he was a child. And my heart goes out to the Roland family 
uh, as well as the Josephson's family. He also said to Nathaniel, quote, There are a thousand trials, each that led to you. All of the evidence, each speck of the evidence, not simply beyond a reasonable doubt, but as the highest standard the law requires all point to your guilt. After he was done with that, he sentenced Nathaniel Rowland to life in prison. The family and friends of Samantha Josephson were left to pick up the pieces in the wake of her death. How would they cope moving forward? Well, they'd do so by honoring her memory with the creation of the What's My Name Foundation, a charity which works to educate people about safety when using rideshare services such as Uber. People should make sure they check the vehicle that's picking them up. The make, model, and license plate number of the vehicle that's supposed to be picking you up are on the app, so ensure those details match before getting into the car. Also check to see that there's a placard or sticker on the vehicle identifying the rideshare service they're driving for. It's also a good idea to be on the phone with someone so that, in the event something nefarious happens, someone can notify the authorities immediately. On top of the foundation, her parents would not only create a college scholarship in her name, but they also worked with lawmakers to advocate for policy changes that enhance safety for rideshare passengers. On June 5, 2019, that law would finally be passed in South Carolina as the Samantha L. Josephson Ridesharing Safety Act, with it requiring that not only must rideshare vehicles display their license plate numbers on the front of their car, but that anyone who misrepresents themselves as being an authorized transportation network driver and who uses that for the furtherance of a criminal endeavor be fined $1,000 and face up to two years in prison. But that wasn't all the new law demanded. It also required companies to issue two credential placards to drivers of rideshare vehicles. Placards that were to be placed on both the driver and passenger side back windows and would include the driver's name and photo along with their license plate number. Then, in one final measure of safety, drivers would also be required to give two barcodes to passengers that they could then scan to confirm this was indeed the person who was supposed to pick them up before they even entered the vehicle. Of course, none of that will bring Samantha back. Just as the North Carolinian law entitled the Passenger Protection Act or the United States Congress-approved Sammy's Law won't be able to return her to her family either. But at least the passing of these new pieces of legislation mean her death wasn't in vain as now going forward the lives of countless others will no doubt be safe where they wouldn't have been before. As for the hope she had of graduating college before her untimely death at the hands of a severely unhinged monster, Samantha would get that in the end too, as in May of 2019, mere months after her murder, she was awarded a posthumous political science degree at what would have been her graduation ceremony. Which means at the very least her final goal was achieved, even if she was no longer around to enjoy it. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing.
If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.